Chapter 11 of Our Village, Volume 1, by Mary Russell Mitford, read by Anne Fletcher, Hobart, 2020. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Our Village, Volume 1. Chapter 11, A Country Cricket Match. I doubt if there be any scene in the world more animating or delightful than a cricket match. I do not mean a set match at Lord's Ground for money, hard money, between a certain number of gentlemen and players, as they are called, people who make a trade of that noble sport and degrade it into an affair of bettings and hedgings and cheatings, it may be, like boxing or horse racing. Nor do I mean a pretty fate in a gentleman's park, where one club of cricketing dandies encounter another such club, and where they show off in graceful costume to a gay marquis of admiring bells, who condescends so to purchase admiration, and while away a long summer morning in partaking cold collations and conversing occasionally and seeming to understand the game the whole being conducted according to ballroom etiquette so as to be exceedingly elegant and exceedingly dull no the cricket that i mean is a real solid old-fashioned match between neighbouring parishes where each attacks the other for honour and a supper glory and half a crown a man if there be any gentleman amongst them it is well if not it is so much the better your gentleman cricketer is in general rather an anomalous character. Elderly gentlemen are obviously good for nothing, and young beaux are, for the most part, hampered and trammelled by dress and habit. The stiff cravat, the pinched-in waist, the dandy walk. Oh, they will never do for cricket. Now our country lads, accustomed to the flail or the hammer, your blacksmiths are capital hitters, have the free use of their arms, they know how to move their shoulders, and they can move their feet too, they can run. Then they are so much better made, so much more athletic, and yet so much lissomer, to use a Hampshire phrase, which deserves at least to be good English. Here and there, indeed, one meets with an old Etonian who retains his boyish love for that game which formed so considerable a branch of his education. Some even preserve their boyish proficiency, but in general it wears away like the Greek, quite as certainly and almost as fast. A few years of Oxford or Cambridge or the continent are sufficient to annihilate both the power and the inclination no a village match is the thing where our highest officer our conductor to borrow a musical term is but a little farmer's second son where a day labourer is our bowler and a blacksmith our longstop where the spectators consist of the retired cricketers the veterans of the green the careful mothers the girls and all the boys of two parishes together with a few amateurs, little above them in rank, and not at all in pretension, where laughing and shouting and the very ecstasy of merriment and good humour prevail. Such a match, in short, as I attended yesterday, at the expense of getting twice wet through, and as I would attend to-morrow at the certainty of having that ducking doubled. For the last three weeks our village has been in a state of great excitement, occasioned by a challenge from our north-western neighbours, the men of B, to contend with us at cricket. Now we have not been much in the habit of playing matches. 
Three or four years ago, indeed, we encountered the men of S, our neighbours south by east, with a sort of doubtful success, beating them on our own ground, whilst they in the second match returned the compliment on theirs. This discouraged us. Then an unnatural coalition between a high church curate and an evangelical gentleman farmer drove our lads from the Sunday evening practice which, as it did not begin before both services were concluded, and as it tended to keep young men from the alehouse, our magistrates had winked at, if not encouraged. The sport, therefore, had languished until the present season, when, under another change of circumstances, the spirit began to revive. Half a dozen fine, active lads, of influence amongst their comrades, grew into men and yearned for cricket, an enterprising publican gave a set of ribbons, and his rival, mine host of the Rose, an outdoer by profession, gave two, and the clergyman and his lay ally, both well-disposed and good-natured men, gratified by the submission to their authority, and finding perhaps that no great good resulted from the substitution of public houses for out-of-doors diversions, relaxed. In short, the practice recommenced and the hill was again alive with men and boys and innocent merriment. But farther than the ribbon matches amongst ourselves, nobody dreamed of going till this challenge. We were modest and doubted our own strength. The bee people, on the other hand, must have been braggers born, a whole parish of Gasconaders. Never was such boasting, such crowing, such ostentatious display of practice, such mutual compliments from man to man, bowler to batter, batter to bowler, it was a wonder they didn't challenge all England. It must be confessed that we were a little astounded, yet we firmly resolved not to decline the combat. And one of the most spirited of the new growth, William Gray by name, took up the glove in a style of manly courtesy that would have done honour to a knight in the days of chivalry. "'We were not professed players,' he said, "'being little better than schoolboys and scarcely older. "'But since they had done us the honour to challenge us, "'we would try our strength. "'It would be no discredit to be beaten by such a field.' "'Having accepted the wager of battle, "'our champion began forthwith to collect his forces. "'William Gray is himself one of the finest youths that one shall see.' tall, active, slender and yet strong, with a piercing eye full of sagacity and a smile full of good humour. A farmer's son by station, and used to hard work as farmer's sons are now, liked by everybody and admitted to be an excellent cricketer. He immediately set forth to muster his men, remembering with great complacency that Samuel Long, a bowler, Comillion à peu, the very man who had knocked down nine wickets, who had beaten us and bowled us out at the fatal return match some years ago at S, had luckily, in a remove of a quarter of a mile last Lady Day, crossed the boundaries of his old parish and actually belonged to us. Here was a stroke of good fortune. Our captain applied to him instantly, and he agreed at a word. Indeed, Samuel Long is a very civilised person. He is a middle-aged man who looks rather old amongst our young lads and whose thickness and breadth give no token of remarkable activity. 
but he is very active and so steady a player so safe we'd half gained the match when we secured him he is a man of substance too in every way owns one cow two donkeys six pigs and geese and ducks beyond count dresses like a farmer and owes no man a shilling and all this from pure industry sheer day labour note that your good cricketer is commonly the most industrious man in the parish the habits that make him such are precisely those which make a good workman steadiness sobriety and activity samuel long might pass for the beau ideal of the two characters happy we were to possess him then we had another piece of good luck james brown a journeyman blacksmith and a native who being of a rambling disposition had roamed from place to place for a half dozen years had just returned to settle with his brother at another corner of our village bringing with him a prodigious reputation in cricket and in gallantry the gay lothario of the neighbourhood he is said to have made more conquests in love and in cricket than any blacksmith in the county to him also went the indefatigable william gray and he also consented to play no end to our good fortune another celebrated batter called joseph hearn had likewise recently married into the parish he worked it is true at the a mills but slept at the house of his wife's father in our territories he also was sought and found by our leader but he was grand and shy made an immense favour of the thing courted courting and then hung back didn't know that he could be spared had partly resolved not to play again at least not this season thought it rash to accept the challenge thought they might do without him truly i think so too said our spirited champion will not trouble you mr hearn having thus secured two powerful auxiliaries and rejected a third we began to reckon and select the regular native forces thus ran our list william gray one samuel long two james brown three george and john simmons one capital the other so-so an uncertain hitter but a good fieldsman five joel brent excellent six ben appleton here was a little pause ben's abilities at cricket were not completely ascertained but then he was so good a fellow so full of fun and waggery no doing without ben so he figured in the list seven george harris a short halt there too slowish slow but sure i think the proverb brought him in eight tom coper oh beyond the world tom coper the red-headed gardening lad whose left-handed strokes send her a cricket ball like that other moving thing a ship is always of the feminine gender send her spinning a mile nine and harry willis another blacksmith ten we now had ten of our eleven but the choice of the last occasioned some demur three young martins rich farmers of the neighbourhood successively presented themselves and were all rejected by our independent and impartial general for want of merit a cricketal merit not good enough was his pithy answer 
Then our worthy neighbour, the half-pay lieutenant, offered his services. He too, though with some hesitation and modesty, was refused. Not quite young enough, was his sentence. John Strong, the exceedingly long son of our dwarfish mason, was the next candidate. A nice youth, everybody likes John Strong, and a willing, but so tall and so limp, bent in the middle, a thread-paper six feet high. We were all afraid that in spite of his name his strength would never hold out. "'Wait till next year, John,' quoth William Gray, with all the dignified seniority of twenty speaking to eighteen. "'Coper's a year younger,' said John. "'Coper's a foot shorter,' replied William. So John retired and the eleventh man remained unchosen almost to the eleventh hour. The eve of the match arrived, and the post was still vacant, when a little boy of fifteen, David Willis, brother to Harry, admitted by accident to the last praxis, saw eight of them out, and was voted in by acclamation. That Sunday evening's practice, for Monday was the important day, was a period of great anxiety, and to say the truth of great pleasure. There's something strangely delightful in the innocent spirit of party. To be one of a numerous body, to be authorised to say we, to have a rightful interest in triumph or defeat, is gratifying at once to social feeling and to personal pride. There was not a ten years old urchin or a septuagenary woman in the parish who did not feel an additional importance, a reflected consequence, in speaking of our side. An election interests in the same way, but that feeling is less pure. Money is there, and hatred, and politics and lies. Oh, to be a voter or a voter's wife comes nothing near the genuine and hearty sympathy of belonging to a parish, breathing the same air, looking on the same trees, and listening to the same nightingales. Talk of a patriotic elector, give me a parochial patriot, a man who loves his parish. Even we, the female partisans, may partake the common ardour. I'm sure I did. I never, though tolerably eager and enthusiastic at all times, remember being in a more delicious state of excitation than on the eve of that battle. Our hopes waxed stronger and stronger. Those of our players who were present were excellent. William Gray got forty notches off his own bat, and that brilliant hitter Tom Coper gained eight from two successive balls. As the evening advanced, too, we had encouragement of another sort. A spy, who had been dispatched to reconnoitre the enemy's quarters, returned from their practising ground with a most consolatory report. Really? said Charles Grover, our intelligencer, a fine old steady judge, one who had played well in his day. They're no better than so many old women. Any five of ours would beat their eleven. This sent us to bed in high spirits. Morning dawned less favourably. The sky promised a series of deluging showers, and kept its word, as English skies are wont to do on such occasions and a lamentable message arrived at the headquarters from our trusty comrade Joel Brent. His master, a great farmer, had begun the hay harvest that very morning, and Joel, being as eminent in one field as in another, could not be spared. 
imagine joel's plight the most ardent of our eleven a knight held back from the tourney a soldier from the battle the poor swain was inconsolable at last one who is always ready to do a good-natured action great or little set forth to back his petition and by dint of appealing to the public spirit of our worthy neighbour and the state of the barometer talking alternately of the parish honour and thunder showers of lost matches and sopped hay he carried his point and returned triumphantly with the delighted joel in the meantime we became sensible of another defalcation on calling over our roll brown was missing and the spy of the preceding night charles grover the universal scout and messenger of the village a man who will run a half dozen miles for a pint of beer who does errands for the very love of the trade who if he had been a lord would have been an ambassador was instantly dispatched to summon the truant his report spread general consternation brown had set off at four o'clock in the morning to play in a cricket match at m a little town twelve miles off which had been his last residence here was desertion here was treachery here was treachery against that goodly state our parish to send james brown to coventry was the immediate resolution but even that seemed too light a punishment for such delinquency then how we cried him down at ten on sunday night for the rascal had actually practised with us and never said a word of his intended disloyalty he was our faithful mate and the best player a take-in for all in all of all the eleven at ten in the morning he had run away and we were well rid of him he was no batter compared with william gray or tom coper not fit to wipe the shoes of samuel long as a bowler and nothing of a scout to john simmons the boy david willis was worth fifty of him i trust we have within our realm five hundred good as he was the universal sentiment so we took tall john strong who with an incurable hankering after the honour of being admitted had kept constantly with the players to take the chance of some such accident we took john for our pis aller i never saw any one prouder than the good-humoured lad was of this not very flattering piece of preferment john strong was elected and brown sent to coventry and when i first heard of his delinquency i thought the punishment only too mild for the crime but i have since learned the secret history of the offence if we could know the secret histories of all offences how much better the world would seem than it does now and really my wrath is much abated it was a piece of gallantry of devotion to the sex or rather a chivalrous obedience to the one chosen fair i must tell my readers the story mary allen the prettiest girl of m had it seems revenged upon our blacksmith the numberless inconstancies of which he stood accused he was in love over head and ears but the nymph was cruel she said no and no and no and poor brown three times rejected at last resolved to leave the place partly in despair and partly in that hope which often mingles strangely with the lover's despair the hope that when he was gone he would be missed he came home to his brothers accordingly 
but for five weeks he heard nothing from or of the inexorable Mary, and was glad to beguile his own vexing thoughts by endeavouring to create in his mind an artificial and factitious interest in our cricket-match, all unimportant as such a trifle must have seemed to a man in love. Poor James, however, is a social and warm-hearted person, not likely to resist a contagious sympathy. As the time for the play advanced, the interest which he had first affected became genuine and sincere, and he was really, when he left the ground on Sunday night, almost as enthusiastically absorbed in the event of the next day as Joel Brent himself. He little foresaw the new and delightful interest which awaited him at home, where on the moment of his arrival his sister-in-law and confidant presented him with a billet from the lady of his heart. It had, with the usual delay of letters sent by private hands in that rank of life, loitered on the road, in a degree inconceivable to those who were accustomed to the punctual speed of the post, and had taken ten days for its twelve-mile journey. Have my readers any wish to see this billet doux? I can show them, but in strict confidence a literal copy. It was addressed for Mr. Jem Brown, blacksmith by s the inside ran thus mr brown this is to inform you that our parish plays bramley men next monday is a week i think we shall lose without you from your humble servant to command mary allen oh, was there ever a prettier relenting a summons more flattering more delicate and more irresistible this precious epistle was undated, but having ascertained who brought it, and found, by cross-examining the messenger, that the Monday in question was the very next day, we were not surprised to find that Mr. Brown forgot his engagement to us, forgot all but Mary and Mary's letter, and set off at four o'clock the next morning to walk twelve miles and play for her parish and in her sight. Really? We must not send James Brown to Coventry, must we? Though if, as his sister-in-law tells our damsel Harriet he hopes to do, he should bring the fair Mary home as his bride, he will not greatly care how little we say to him. But he must not be sent to Coventry. True love forbid. At last we were all assembled, and marched down to H. Common, the appointed ground which, though in our dominions, according to the map, was the constant practising place of our opponents, and terra incognita to us. We found our adversaries on the ground as we expected, for our various delays had hindered us from taking the field so early as we wished, and as soon as we had settled all preliminaries, the match began. But alas, I have been so long settling my preliminaries that I have left myself no room for the detail of our victory, and must squeeze the account of our grand achievements into as little compass as Cowley, when he crammed the names of eleven of his mistresses into the narrow space of four eight-syllable lines. They began the warfare, those boastful men of B. And what, think you, gentle reader, was the amount of their innings? These challengers, the famous eleven, how many did they get? Think, imagine, guess. You cannot? Well, 
they got twenty-two, or rather they got twenty, for two of theirs were short notches and would never have been allowed, only that seeing what they were made of, we and our umpires were not particular. They should have had twenty more if they'd chosen to claim them. Oh, how well we fielded, and how well we bowled! Our good play had quite as much to do with their miserable failure as their bad. Samuel Long is a slow bowler, and George Simmons a fast one, and the change from Long's lobbing to Simmons' fast balls posed them completely. Oh, poor simpletons, they were always wrong, expecting the slow for the quick and the quick for the slow. Well, we went in. And what were our innings? Guess again, guess! A hundred and sixty-nine, in spite of soaking showers and wretched ground where the ball would not run a yard, we headed them by a hundred and forty-seven. And then they gave in, as well they might. William Gray pressed them much to try another innings. There was so much chance, as he courteously observed, in cricket, that advantageous as our position seemed, we might very possibly be overtaken. The bee-men had better try. But they were beaten sulky, and would not move, to my great disappointment. I wanted to prolong the pleasure of success. What a glorious sensation it is to be for five hours together winning, winning and winning, always feeling what a whist player feels when he takes up four honours and seven trumps. Who would think that a little bit of leather and two pieces of wood had such a delightful and delighting power? The only drawback on my enjoyment was the failure of the pretty boy David Willis, who injudiciously put in first, and playing for the first time in a match amongst men and strangers, who talked to him and stared at him, was seized with such a fit of shame-faced shyness that he could scarcely hold his bat, and was bowled out without a stroke from actual nervousness. "'He will come of that,' Tom Coper says. "'I'm afraid he will. I wonder whether Tom had ever any modesty to lose.' Our other modest lad, John Strong, did very well. His length told in fielding, and he got good fame. Joel Brent, the rescued mower, got into a scrape and out of it again, his fortune for the day. He ran out his mate, Samuel Long, who I do believe, but for the excess of Joel's eagerness, would have stayed in till this time, by which exploit he got into sad disgrace and then he himself got thirty-seven runs, which redeemed his reputation. William Gray made a hit which actually lost the cricket ball. We think she lodged in a hedge a quarter of a mile off, but nobody could find her. And George Simmons nearly lost his shoe, which he tossed away in a passion for having been caught out, owing to the ball glancing against it. These, together with a very complete summer set of Ben Appleton, our long-stop, who floundered about in the mud, making faces and attitudes as laughable as Grimaldi, none could tell whether by accident or design, were the chief incidents of the scene of action. Amongst the spectators nothing remarkable occurred, beyond the general calamity of two or three drenchings, except that a form placed by the side of a hedge under a very insufficient shelter was knocked into the ditch in a sudden rush of the cricketers to escape a pelting shower 
by which means all parties shared the fate of Ben Appleton, some on land and some by water, and that, amidst the scramble, a saucy gypsy of a girl contrived to steal from the knee of the demure and well-apparelled Samuel Long a smart handkerchief, which his careful dame had tied round it to preserve his new—what is the mincing feminine word?—his new inexpressibles, <laughs> thus reversing the story of Desdemona, and causing the new Othello to call aloud for his handkerchief, to the great diversion of the company. And so we parted, the players retired to their supper, and we to our homes, all wet through, and all good-humoured, and all happy, except the losers. Today we are happy too, hats with ribbons in them go glancing up and down, and William Gray says with a proud humility, We do not challenge any parish, but if we be challenged, we are ready. End of chapter 11